The curse of the foul fiend upon you, John Kulrek. The curse of God rest upon your vile soul throughout eternity. And you, Lylip, you shall be the death of John Kulrek, and he shall be the death of you. You shall bring John Kulrek to the doors of hell, and John Kulrek shall bring you to the gallows tree. Hi, and welcome to the Genre Podcast. This is the podcast where we read genre books or genre movies, watch genre movies, and then discuss them. Right now, we're currently in the midst of our sea shanties and sea stories. We're in the midst of reading sea shanties this is our in our era, in, in this, in this uh, epoch. We're really steeping in the ocean, in the waters of sea tales right now. Yes, yes, we're deep in the, deep in the waters of sea tales. We're up to it and, you know, with our legs covered in seaweed, feet full of gravel, salty taste in our lips. It's like the Boston Tea Party. We're the tea. Uh, so right now, as we dip our toe in the, the dirty, salty waters of, uh, of the sea shanty. We're currently reading Robert E. Howard's horror story, I suppose you would say. Horror. I'd definitely say. Kind of pirate sea story. The Sea Curse. Uh, so, hi, hi guys, I'm John. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. This is Genre. I'll tell you what I like. I like that this story appeared in Weird Tales magazine, which they call themselves Weird Tales, subtitle The Unique Magazine, the May 1928 issue. Do you guys have a picture of the the, the magazine itself that the story comes wrapped in by chance? Have you had a chance to look at it? I do, yeah. Is it the one with like two like Neanderthal chimpanzee looking guys dragging away a woman all in orange? Yeah. The yeah. Batman so of Thorium. So for the listener... Let me open up your imagination wide, and I want you to imagine a woman, arms in the air, red hair, red dress, screaming, while two men who are green on the top half, furry on the bottom half, are carrying her away. And the title is The Batman of Thorium. By Bertram Russell, not Bertrand Russell. <laughs> I know. I, I saw that title and I was like, wow, Bertrand Russell, philosopher of math. <laughs> historian <laughs> and writer of the Batman of Thorium. I had to I had to check myself a little bit. So so this is not the same Batman Batman who uh fight the penguin and the Joker, is it? Or... No, that's the next issue. <laughs> All right. Seekers by Robert E. Howard. Have we read Robert Howard before? Oh yeah, we read him before when we read the first I think the very first story of Conan, when Conan the Barbarian starts to take over or start, no, no, he's, he's, he's established as a king, and he's getting bored with that. Great story. Lots of fun sentences, lots of cool adventure lore. So this, this story is very similar, but obviously horror and seafaring. Yeah. yeah, Robert E. Howard is really one of those authors that I would love for us to really dive deep into. Mm. He obviously has the Conan the Barbarian or Conan the Sumerian series. Mm. He also does Solomon Cain. And then, like, just a thousand short stories with really good titles, like Worms of the Earth and Pigeons from Hell. So I think I think there's a lot for us there to really dig into, you know? Yeah, yeah. And plus, I mean, we've already read quite a bit of Lovecraft, and since they were, they were buddies, you know, and he's technically writing in the Lovecraft universe, it is kind of fun to go into what they've created together. I, would all, I think we should do a whole month of... Sure. If, if you ask Robert E. Howard, do you think he would say he was for, writing in the Lovecraft universe? Or would he say that Lovecraft was writing in the Howard universe? I think because Lovecraft wrote him a letter and said, hey, would you like to participate and write in my 
universe and how it started. I can't remember what that's called. Fan fictioning? Ay, ay, ay. No, sorry. No, there's a name for that. Well, yes, it'd be fanfic, but there's a name for the actual universe that Lovecraft invited him into the whole kind of, what is that called when you have an Eldridge God universe? So he invited Robert E. Howard into that and Robert E. Howard took like one section, one epoch of that timeline. That's all public domain now, yeah. right? We can we can hop in that if we, uh, if we want to. <laughs> yeah, we can join that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> some of it is, some of it's not in there yet. Yeah. Cool. So, all right. Well, let's talk about this uh, story. Who Who's in it? What happens? Well, at first, we're, we're introduced to these sort of almost mythical characters, these, you know, sort of seafaring men, John Kulrek and Lila Kunul. I were introduced to them at first, and I really love the way they're described. I love the language that Robert E. Howard's using. It's very artful. He describes them as brawlers, hmm. braggarts, boasters. He describes them as having brutal deeds and being like, to some at least, to the idlers and cringers in the tavern of this seafaring village of Faringtown. Mm. They're regarded as being nature's noblemen who dared to be men of blood and brawn. So I love this, like, all these, like, B words and plosives to describe them. Mm. So Alliteration. Because again and again, and it's just, like, really great. You build a picture of these men, like, they're never really described very in much detail. More their reputations are described. So those are, mm. I think, sort of the two characters at the heart of the tale. And yeah, what do you guys think of those two? Hmm. Well, you know what? Let's, let's, uh, I pulled out the first sentence of this story as an example of really good alliteration. You read, you read yeah. individual words from it, but just a single sentence. Let's hear this. They were the brawlers and braggarts, the loud boasters and hard drinkers of Faringtown, John Colrack and his crony, Lie Lip Canool. So we have brawlers and braggarts, buh buh. And they're loud boasters, so ba ba ba, so three Bs, and then the hard drinkers of Fairy Town, John Coolwreck and Crony, Lilip Canool. So Crony, Coolwreck, Canool, and then Lilip, and then you have the L at the end of Canool. Is Robert E. Howard the poet laureate of Weird Tales magazine? (laughs) Yeah, he and Lovecraft. I mean. They were all about the, the sounds going on in their sentences. I think you guys have both touched on something that I think we might talk about more in a second, but the alliteration, when we've read the knight's tales in the past, like the King Arthur tales, those are in alliterative verse. Actual, you know, that was the, the style of the poetry. And all of those have those kind of alliterative, alliterative sentences. And I think when, as we read more of the nautical lore stories, it just feels very appropriate. These kind of whimsical heavy alliteration sentences that are fun. I felt, you know, sometimes you might think, oh, it's a little bit too much. But I think when you're looking for a pirate story, a seafaring story, you're really expecting it. Kind of the the yeah. thrill of throwing yourself into the sentence. you got to have like the musical quality of it. It's almost been like a, a, a shant, you know, sea shanty or a song. I've got mm, that, you know, yeah. they have that mood to them. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting you made the comparison there between like this sort of style of writing and the Arthurian romances that we read a, a few a few eras back, a few epochs back, you know, and it's very interesting that actually the men, John Colrec and Lilip Canool, are described explicitly by Robert E. Howard as being to the people, the sort of tavern loafers and the weaker among the straightforward villagers. <laughs> he said, these men, John Colrec and Lilip Canool, with their wild talk and their brutal deeds, their tales of the seven seas and the far countries, these men, I say, were valiant knights. And they have, they do have this like knight-like mythology to them, don't they? It's very similar to the Arthurian romance. So, what makes a knight in this case, or in a regular King Arthur knight? 
Well, I mean, I guess what I'm curious is, is how are they, how does the comparison hold and where does it fall apart? Mm. I think one important part where it holds or where it's described really well here is all of the, I'll read this part. It says in, in the Seekers, how the cringers and the idlers, the hangers on would swarm about the two desperate heroes flattering and smirking, guffawing hilariously at each nasty jest. I feel like that happens a lot in these knights' tales, where there's all of these wannabe knights following them around, trying to be like them. And that's the same thing happening here. We've seen knights who want to be actually valiant. These guys are look valiant or look impressive, these two pirate men, but they're, they're not good people at all. Whereas the knights are supposed to be the best people on earth. They're supposed to be the most valiant and moral people. So I think there it totally falls apart. But the I guess kind of the braggadocio or like the kind of posturing of these guys walking down the street and everybody's walking behind them feels very knight-like. You might say the knights for a different age, you know, like it definitely is on the moral basis that they fall apart. You know, the whole idea of the knights is that they were living up to some Christian notion of virtue. Whereas here, virtue doesn't come into it. They're just out for pure self-interest. So I wonder if there's some maybe implied significance to that change that Robert E. Howard's trying to sort of get across, although I'm not sort of clear exactly what that would be. Yeah, you wouldn't say that they are soldiers of God by any means. Do you think there's some sense in which we're supposed to see them like it's like ironically in a way, as in as like Don Quixote type figures rather than as knight type figures? Well, I don't think they present themselves as good people. Well, okay, so they don't present themselves as 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 the righteous, upstanding citizens. They present themselves as larger than life. They tell very tall tales. Tall tales. <laughs> I mean, what do they do when they're when they're on the shore? I have a quote here. John Coolreck and his cronies who sat in the tavern, dicing and toping. Now, I don't know what toping is, but I looked it up. It might be pronounced topping, but I feel like it needs two Ps. It's T-O-P-I-N-G. And the... Wicca Wiktionary source says it's a alteration of the obsolete top, which is to drink, as in to top off. Hey, top mm. me off, barkeep. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, what they do when they're at the the shore is they get drunk and they play dice. Yes. Which is is no Arthurian material for sure. Perhaps it says more about this this place faring town that they would even be considered heroes by anybody than it does. You know, it seems to have a larger implication there, almost, about this this town as just being somewhere that's fundamentally a little bit lacking that's a, in moral fiber. And sort of one major event... That's a really good point about the town, because is the town itself presented as a good place? Or maybe a different way to approach this question is, who else lives in this town, and how does Robert E. Howard describe them? Well, this is, it. This is why I think it's interesting, because the other sort of main characters, other than the narrators who we need to talk about soon... Because, you know, the narrators at first sort of keep out of it, but then become a, an important part of the story in the second half of the story. But just to stay with about this first, you can see it really as a story of two halves. And of this first half of the story, there's, you know, it's called the sea curse. Well, who gives the curse? Well, it's this old lady, Mole Flanders. And Mole Flanders lives with her daughter, not in this faring town, but she lives on the borders between like the town and the ocean in a way. Like the town is right by the ocean. But they almost like live, mm -hmm. it says like when the tide comes in, it's almost at the front door. It's at the front door. And that's an important part of the story. So this idea, of, and they, she makes a living just by collecting clams and other detritus from the sea. So there's this sort of like sense in which, you know, they're not really part of the town. They're sort of 
got, they've got one foot in the town, but they've got one foot in the ocean as well. So they're sort of outsiders mm. and they live on the boundary mm. between the town and the sort of just the ocean beyond. So in a way that they're the closest to John Kulrak and Lilac Canoe, like they go all the way out somewhere else. But they, mm. this small flander sort of lives on the borderlands a little bit. And basically, you know, indicating the sort of corruption of Faring Town, it seems like Maul Farrell's daughter has gone into Faring Town and she has, how is it put, like lost her dignity, had something... It's implied that she's yeah. badly mistreated by John Cole. Right, put to shame, I think. Yeah, yeah. At the risk of sounding like a blame the girl type thing, I just want to point out that this isn't a case of upstanding moral purity being poisoned or contaminated by our villainous anti-hero, <laughs> however you want to place John Colwreck. I don't know if we would call him a protagonist or, or not good guy. The point I'm trying to make is that the way this girl is introduced by Robert E. Howard is by saying, the girl was a pretty, foolish little thing, vain and easily befooled, else she had never yielded to the shark-like blandishments of John Coolreck. So mm. she's vain and foolish, and he's shark-like. So that's that's the dynamic we're setting up. It's not mm. that she's like a, an angel who's been violated by Lucifer or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really we we have different mm. shades of fallen, I guess you would say. Yes. Maybe fallen's not the right word, but but no one here is is looking good. No one is the north yeah. star of goodness. And obviously in the story this daughter has a very tragic end, you know, presumably from the shame, which again connects us to the town, you know, the idea of other people's opinions and reputation. So the shame of this event has led her to commit, commit suicide. And so then she washes up from this. She goes missing for a while. And Maul Flanders is like, my daughter's missing, my daughter's missing. But then a few days later, the daughter just gets washed up on shore. Because like I mentioned before, they live as the tide comes right up to the doorstep. And she washes up on her own doorstep, like looking like peaceful, like Ophelia almost. And then all the villagers sort of crowd around and see it. And Maul Flanders sees John Coolreck lilac canoe laughing and she's just so overcome with hatred for them she places this monumental curse upon them which is hmm. really quite an incredible scene i think i like that too it does kind of change the whole dynamic of the town because everyone's been following following colric and lilac and all of these kind of like you said larger than life sailors who can do anything out on the sea come back tell their tall tales they used to follow them back and forth and now after whatever has happened to Maul Farrell's niece either she's been forced into something but anyway we know she's dead because of the shame they all now seem to separate all of these followers separate from Lilip and Colric and I think they now dislike them at this point well yeah and I mean I think maybe like what John Colric says when she washes up as well he says Zounds Sounds. Yeah. Swore John Coolrack. The wench has drowned herself, Lilip. Mm. That's what he says to really upset Maul Flanders. Mm -hmm. The wench has drowned herself. And I don't think that the implication is that that's untrue. I think it's much the tone, the way he says it is just so horrid that it's a it's crass, very crass, crass tone, tone. indeed. Yeah. Especially considering he like, directly led to the events that led to her drowning herself. You know, he's partly to blame, I think, at least Maul Flanders mm. would say. And I think we would, yeah. most of us say. Yeah. Well, John Colrec isn't the only one implicated in this bit of dialogue. The very next line is, Lilip laughed. Now, we could just 
point first off to the fact that the man's name is lie mm. lip not like lie down but i'm going <laughs> to tell you a lie and it's on his yeah. lips lie lip laughed with a twist of his thin mouth so thin mouth he's he's presented as i mean i don't know if i would call someone's thin mouth really an insult but it's certainly not i don't think it's meant to be you know appealing <laughs> in this case he always hated Maul Farrell, for it was she that had given him the name of Lilip. So this is a person living with malice, really, a long-standing grudge against Maul Farrell. So, you know, Colrec is implicated for his crassness, Lilip with his with his hatred. Yeah, certainly. So Maul Farrell sees the girl and screams. And the scream sends ripples of cold up and down the spines of the throng. Hmm. So her grief affects the crowd of people. Mm -hmm. And what she says is, the curse of the foul fiend upon you, John Kulrek. What do you what do you make of this foul fiend? I'm not sure, because it is given like a, a you know, it's a proper noun with two capital Fs. Like, so it's, I'm not quite sure who it's referring to here. It almost reminds me of like when the fates are described with a capital F, you know, it's just like the curse of the mm. foul fiend, like what's being referred to here. I'm really not sure because there's obviously a way to read this where you can say this is really just Maul Flanders looking at these two very viceful, horrendous human beings, essentially, and knowing that eventually they would tear each other apart. Mm. And maybe she, because I mean, when Lilith is first introduced, it, it, Robert E. Howard not accidentally knows that he's carrying a dagger. So we're already supposed to think of Lilith as a little bit dangerous and someone who's carrying a weapon, like he's he's ready to commit violence. And that's implied from the very first moment he's introduced to us as a character. So you could say all of this is just like, you guys are so horrid, you're so corrupt that you're inevitably going to have a downfall and it's going to happen soon. Or maybe there's an element then of ha having said that this is like a, it's a full, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy on account of John Kulrek <laughs> and Lilith who are already having a tense relationship maybe. So you can you can read it in this way where it's almost like, purely a, you know a secular type way of reading it see everything is like a, you know her just saying foul fiend god but really she's just cursing them but obviously then there's a supernatural reading of this story which which is that she is invoking somehow some higher powers and some extra spirits and i think that would fit with the genre so i don't know what what, what do you guys stand on that like what do you think is is going on with this curse of the foul fiend I just assumed the Falfine was the the devil because the the boat comes from hell. It's interesting that she has the curse of God and the curse of the devil on them. She seems to have more of a relationship with hell and the devil because that's ultimately who does the work of the curse. I mean, she is described as being something of a witch, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I th I think there's definitely a difference between the kind of person who says "God damn you" versus. I invoke our Lord Lucifer to come up and drag you down into hell. You know, like there's a, the, the, I, I, I just get the feeling that a, the person who invokes the foul fiend is a person mm. with at least two toes dipped in oh, yeah. the occult. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At least two toes. Two toes dipped the... Yeah, maybe all six of them. Woo! Mm. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm not ready to rule out. So, so we we threw out the idea that the foul fiend is kind of like a Luciferian I mean, satanic be. presence, but I'm not ready to rule out that it's a kind of oceanic god mm. or even like a, the ocean itself personified as a malignant being. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the boat comes from the bottom of the ocean from hell, so it's almost like the, the two are connected. But maybe it is a ocean specific, not hell specific boat. 
And it's interesting, I guess, like the, the, the prophecy that is made as well. I don't know we maybe made it explicit, this idea that like, as the quotes I read right at the beginning of this episode, Lila, as he says, will bring death to John Kulrek and John Kulrek will bring... So he said uh, that Lilip will bring John Kulrek to the doors of hell. He's going to kill him. And John Kulrek shall bring Lilip to the gallows tree. He's going to get hanged for a crime. So she's basically saying, you know, in plain English, Lilip's going to kill John Kulrek and then Lilip's going to get executed for killing John Kulrek. And, you know, in a sense, they're going to kill one another. So this is sort of the explicit threat of the curse. Mm. And this obviously, like, sets a massive mood of just, like, foreshadowing and just, like, looking forward for the rest of the story, a sense of suspense of, is this going to happen? When's it going to happen? How is it going to happen? Well, she tells us when. She says, I, John Coolred. Oh, yeah, when the mountain freezes And she spoke with up, such a yeah. terrible intensity that the drunken mockery on the man's face changed to one of swinish stupidity. Yes. The sea roars for the victim it will not keep. There is snow upon the hills, John Coolred, and ere it melts, your corpse will lie at my feet, and I shall spit upon it and be content. Yeah. But what I mean is we don't know when it's going to melt. Like We don't know when it's going to melt. We don't know when it's going to melt. But the fact that she is able to not only predict the situation of their downfall of these two mm. men, but also give us a kind of time signal. You will know that it is time for mm. retribution to happen when uh, – I'm thinking we might have three toes dipped into the occult. I, I don't know. At least three. <laughs> yeah. At least three, maybe all twelve. Yeah. So you know, I've been I've been reading Dante a lot, and I think it's fundamentally changed how I read books because now, anytime I I look at characters, I think, what level of hell are they? <laughs> Would I find this person? And when she talks about a corpse lying at her feet and her spitting mm. on it and being content, this is malice through and through, hatred. And that is definitely the lower rings of hell. We are getting closer and closer to Satan here. <laughs> so this is, a, you know, in the in the kind of Christian schema, this is not a this is not a person who makes it to heaven. <laughs> the, is that the one where the people are gnawing each other's heads? Let's see. That that's the. I think that's. Oh yeah, yeah. Where they're like stuck they're together in ice. And, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. I found that one yeah. really disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although this is definitely more of a, you know, r- r- this is definitely more of a pagan curse than a Christian curse, though, isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. She just says the, for the curse of God rests upon your vowel soul through eternity, but then she also invokes the demons of the swamplands, the fiends of the forest, and the goblins yeah. of the hills. And obviously, of course, you can't forget the massive natural force that is the ocean that is, and, and the mountains that are going to bring this about. Like, she's very much like steeped in nature, you know, she's like the feminine force. Let's talk about the mm. sea and how he personifies it. Because yes. in that quote we just read, she says, the sea roars for the victim it will not keep. So there we have the sea roaring like an animal. And then later, when mm. when they find the body, the tides bore her gently across the wet sands and laid her almost at her own door. So like the sea is a character in this. Mm. In the sense that the sea is doing actions and is being personified, is being described in very human terms. Well, I just think like characterizing the sea so strongly is very interesting because we've already sort of seen how the the town is characterized so strongly as well Hmm. in such vivid language. And when I say the town, 
you know, I, I mean the town in the sense of like the polis, you know, so not just like the institutions, or whatever, but just all the people in it as well. And whatever the popular, you know, superstitions are and so forth. So this town is characterized very strongly. There's like a multitude of like cringers and idlers and these few valiant natures noblemen, but they're all fundamentally kind of corrupt. And we said like the mall sort of exists in the borderlands between that and like the ocean. And now here we have like the ocean characterized in a very different way, but still as like a very interesting like causal force. So there's like a tension, isn't there, between like the fairing town and the ocean, civilization and like nature, I guess maybe. Yeah. And like, so maybe we could talk now a little bit about like who's telling the story here, like the the narrator introduces himself right at the start, but then kind of like disappears and he's just telling this tale. Uh, so he describes himself as a tussle-haired lad. So he's like, he's quite a young guy. So he's like, you know, quite young. And then about halfway through the story, we're introduced to his friend Joe. We find out these two like young men on a boat. So how do they come into this like tale? This was actually a big question for me. So I wasn't sure where the narrator came from. I just know that it was very suddenly, about halfway through the story, that I was aware of the existence of the narrator, that it wasn't third-person omniscient, but it was actually, we were being led along by, you know, a first-person narrator. Well, it says it in that first line, that very first line, I a tussle, or second line, sorry, I a tussle-haired lad hmm. know this from my times in the tavern. So we know there is a narrator here right at the start, but it remains mm-hmm. dormant, as it were, until halfway through the story. Yeah. Almost on the final page. Yeah, maybe two-thirds of the way through is probably yeah, about it. It suddenly shifts into now. I mind that the next day was even colder. So And that word as well, now, the first word of that section, yeah. like he points it out like it's now. almost like what we get with this story is I want to tell you the tale, or I want to tell you about this this thing that's about to happen, but first we gotta start at the very beginning. So all of this happened and <laughs> now we're going to see some real crazy stuff. Let's see, is this... So So really, okay, well, we got some, we got some plot to discuss here. But the now happens right before <laughs> the big supernatural revelation. So it's yes. like, I want to tell you about this galley, this ancient galley filled with skeletons, which is wild. But first, before I can do that, I got to tell you three pages of how we got here. So to me, that feels very like I can't think of good examples, but it feels very nautical lore where someone's telling you a story. They're kind of they mention themselves a little bit, but they don't do any actions. They might say, like he says, I was a boy with tussled hair. Then it's just the narrator telling you what happened. They're not really involved. And then at the end, they come in and they do all the actions to complete the story. I feel like that's very pirate-like story because after he says now it does just continue narrating but then they say okay now the two of us we got in a boat we went to go see that they are the ones who actually experience all the supernatural stuff nobody else does directly just the narrator and his friend joe that's that's really interesting i really regret that we haven't read more nautical tales because i would love to just be able to pull out of my back pocket examples of the narrator i mean Moby Dick might mm. be a good example of like the narrator having a very mm. s- strong background presence. That might be two conflicting words, you know, but we haven't read Moby Dick together, but we will read that hopefully in the future and other stories. So maybe this is something we really need to put in our back pockets and keep in mind for the future of like, what does the narrator do differently in the sea story than in the adventure story, the horror story? The timeless image of skeletons rowing boats. We've seen this before. In another 
Weird Tales Magazine Tale, The Isle of the Undead by Arthur Eschbach. And listeners, you can go back and check out that episode anytime. But yeah, that's another story where the kind of supernatural element at sea is an old ancient vessel being rowed by skeletons. <laughs> yeah. Timeless. The ship comes back to the this the village, the port. People ask, Hey, where's where's your guy John? And Lilip Canool says, Oh, he he left on some port, you know, somewhere else. Mm. And then it turns out he didn't leave, but Lilip actually stabbed him. Well his uh, to read his quote. Yeah. Oh yeah, go for it. Well, I was just gonna sort of flesh it out a little bit more. So there's a lot more like going on here where it's like there's this part of the witch's curse. Sorry, Mollflanders curse, the witch's curse, whatever, the sea curse, is this this idea that the sea will not keep the body. The sea will not accept the body. Like this body is so disgusting, like so corrupted, maybe by fairy town or maybe by something else. They've been exploring the seas and they've been, you know, gathering tales and generally probably getting up to all sorts of criminality and degeneracy are using the sea. Well, the sea is like rejecting the body. So that's part of this prophecy here. The sea will reject the body. So Lilith comes to shore and he says, listen, you know, he, he stayed on port over there. Do you know what I mean? Like something happened. He's fine. He's just, he's not with me anymore. He deserted. I'm not deserting. I'm not a deserter. I'm going back to see you guys. So Lilith's trying to play the political angle here. But the sea is not having any of it. So the sea, just like it brought the body of Molthander's daughter forth earlier in the story, now it brings on the tide to the doorstep of Mal Flanders, the body of John Kulrak. You know, it's clear he's been murdered. Is it stabbed? How is he murdered? I think stabbed in the back. I think stabbed with that dagger that's mentioned right at the start of the story. In a drunken brawl. Yeah, in a drunken drunken brawl. Him and Lilith, and then Lilith is, you know, hangs from a gallow tree and the prophecy is fulfilled. But it's, it's very interesting, this idea of like, if we are talking about the opposition between the sea and Faring Town, or the sea rejects him. Walk the body mm-hmm. down, and in show of doing, he reveals the secret of Lilith as well. The secret crime has come out finally. So there's a sense almost like of cleansing at the end, you might say. Well, I just want to know what you guys make of the relationship between the galley of skeletons mm-hmm. and I guess like the sea would not keep his body, so the sea itself pushes John's body. Like, what, what, what did, did we get? Is that just left as a big question mark of what the galley of skeletons is doing there? Because I wasn't clear on their relationship. Well, it doesn't seem to have any explanation, does it? Like, it just seems to be some peculiar, miraculous event that occurs. Supernatural, certainly. I thought they were kind of employed by the curse. Like, so it's not just the sea giving back the body, but it's this boat that works for the sea and and this relationship with the the foul fiend. So the, the one body, the niece, is just given back, but this one is delivered. So I think he's on the ship. John Colrick. Oh. But again, only Joe and the other guys see the ship. So it looks like to everyone else, John Colrick just washes up on shore, whereas mm. our narrator and his friend saw him on the galley. So they see the galley. They're watching it. There's a throng of people at the shoreline. Straight on swept the galley. Her oars a swish. Oh, I love that line. Her oars a swish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and ere she reached the shallow water, crash, a terrific reverberation shook the bay. So what we get is basically the ship crashes into the shore, more or less. But then Mm. the grim craft seemed to melt away. She vanished. So almost like an apparition. This this the ship of skeletons isn't real per se, but it is functionally real. But you know, it's not like made out of literal wood. 
it's just there to seemingly hmm. deliver. But there floated no driftwood, yeah. nor did there ever float any ashore. I something floated ashore, but it was grim driftwood. So so no no ship <laughs> a deck, but a kind of grim, grim driftwood, driftwood, which is the from nature's nobleman, the valiant knight to grim driftwood. Yeah. Next time I see a body floating face up in the water, I'm gonna be like, <laughs> ah, yeah, some grim driftwood, and then I'll call the police and hire a uh, trauma counselor. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's described later on, like when it's described after John Rockulrex come home again, the word grim, still and grim he lay, rocked by the tide, and he lurched as it, and as he lurched sideways. Also, the dagger hilt that stood from his back. The dagger all of us had seen a thousand times at the belt of mm. lilac canoe. Okay, so this ne- the, ne- the following sentence after that, which I'll just read real quick. I, I killed him, came canoe's shriek as he writhed and groveled before our gaze. I just read that one sentence and I was like, we have a detective denouement here. We didn't even have a mystery <laughs> until the sentence before. But what we're getting is like very suddenly like, oh, there's been a murder. And then the following sentence, I'll tell you how I did it. If it weren't for you meddling kids. <laughs> yeah. But then when he tells him how he does it, it's just like, it's really great. And when he tells him how he does it as well, like the following sentence is just a great series of, of lines and ideas here. At sea on a still night in a drunken brawl, I slew him and hurled him overboard. And from the far seas, he has followed me. His voice sank to a hideous whisper. Because of the sea, curse of the sea, <laughs> would not keep his body. And the wretch sank down trembling, the shadow of the gallows already in his eyes. Wow. What a great morality tale. Wow. This is what happens if you are a criminal reprobate. Yeah. reprobate. Oh, look, and we get an explanation here immediately mm. after that from Mal Farrell, the, the sea witch. I, strong, deep, and exultant was Mal Farrell's voice. From the hell of lost craft, Satan sent in a ship of bygone ages, a ship red with gore and stained with the memory of horrid crimes. None other would bear such a vile carcass. The sea has taken vengeance and has given me mine. See now how I spit upon the face of John Colrec. So we get some good tying up the loose ends here. The, mm-hmm. the, the ship is a cursed ship from its own crimes, the foul fiend is none other than Satan himself, and she also gets to fulfill her own prophecy of spitting on John Cool <laughs> Yes. And then the final lines, and with a ghastly laugh she's pitched forward, the blood starting to her lips, and the sun came up across the restless sea. So at the end is kind of like, nature is healing, you know? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I was wondering that. That's what it is saying, right? It's like saying the color is coming back to her lips. She's not spitting up blood, yeah. is she? I had to read it a few times because no, like, so yeah, it's like the, it's like yeah. I think it's the colors coming to her lips. That's very interesting. I hadn't picked up on that sort of like contrast there, but yeah, I think it's the idea is that life is coming to her lips rather than she's losing blood. But then also with the she has a ghastly laugh. She pitched. Isn't there forward. kind of like venomous animal that spits blood? Okay. Maybe I'm making that up. I have no idea. Is that what were you saying, Bob? Could be. It does say that she pitched forward though. You know, like she's like hunching over, yeah. blood starting to her lips. It doesn't say like blood filling her lips. Well, that would also be ambiguous. Don't know. Well, yeah. I know that throughout this tale, in her grief, she's portrayed as more and more oh. ghost-like, more and more pale, yes. more and more skeletal. Yes. So this is like so long so as this... healing here. Yeah, yeah. So long as this great wrong has remained unrighted. Which would fit with the witch idea as well. Like she's brewed up a medicine for herself, you know? Uh, 
could be taken the other way too, though, because I mean, if she's, as she's getting more and more ghostly, more and more ghostly, maybe she's expended the last of her life to complete this curse. And so she's given, but yeah, it's hard to, hard to say. I just think the mood fits more with that, the, the other yeah. interpretation. This idea that the sun came up across the restless sea, like, you know, there's a re, re, rebirth. That's true. It seems to be implied here rather well, than death. I uh, will point out that it's not the sun came up across the still sea. It's the restless sea. So there's this sense in which, and I'm, you know, I'm really digging deep in here, but there's a sense in which the thirst of that malignant ocean has not Mm. been quenched, so to speak. Like, you know, it's not like we've tamed the oceans, but, you know, the oceans remain as mystical and violent as they've always been, even if the sun is now coming up upon this dark night that Maul Farrell has experienced. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. It could, you're right, it could be still not unquenched because, I mean, it's already given her back to, it's done two favors for Maul Farrell, given her back two bodies. So the sea has been given no bodies. So maybe it's thirsting for one and she's got to pay the... So really, this is like a, this is very much like a genre question, isn't it? I mean, there there are certain possibilities here, right? There are certain tropes of ways stories like this end. Sometimes you've stuck, had the power of suck from you and that's your final chapter. Or sometimes it gives you sucker and that's exactly what you need. And, you know, really, I guess we, you can sort of arbitrarily between, pick between the two. And, like, you can pitch a sense somewhere like one or the other. Like, I personally would lean towards the idea that she's not she's being regenerated by this. That this blood starting mm-hmm. to her lips does mean her life's been returned to her and the sun is coming up across the restless sea because it's like it's overcoming the restless sea, right? The, the restless sea is now in the past. It's part of the night, the daytime. It's coming up across mm-hmm. it like it's overcoming it. Hmm. But you could really read these all certain ways, but there are still, nonetheless, there's not infinite ways this could go. There's like two or three possibilities or tropes that we know from similar stories where it's like, yeah. it's probably that or that. So I don't know. Well, I, I, like and I should yeah. clarify, I think that her story, her conflict is fully resolved. I just mean that yes. it is, it wouldn't be much of a sea yarn if the the sea, the grand oceans were a kiddie pool. You know, there mm. needs to be danger mystery and <laughs> well it's like almost like the Kantian yeah. sublime isn't it you know this that overcomes mere beauty and we're supposed to attach that to the sea we naturally tend to because it's just such an overwhelming force well it, it could be that and it also i'm wondering that you brought this up when we did the Arthurian tales again the the force of nature as something that is maybe just sublime and will crumble castles and take over civilization or maybe it's malignant and evil and I think sometimes, I mean, the ocean provides the boat of horrid crimes that's made of gore and bones. It provides this boat. It ends up restless at the end. And then it might want more. It might want some sort of tribute. I think there's one line when she does her curse where she says, the sea will roar for the body. For the yeah, the sea, the sea roars for the victim it will not keep. So yeah, I, I'm wondering when we read these sea shanties, is it a sublime nature, a sublime ocean, or sometimes is it actually evil? Like, is the ocean causing the evil, or is it just people doing evil things and the ocean doing its own thing? It almost strikes Unclear me as, here. It almost strikes me that the sea is kind of like a force almost for good, because there's this constant idea of the curse of the sea would not keep his body. So his body is something corrupt that needs to be sort of rejected. And the same could go for this ghostly galley. I mean, it crashes. You know, it's not, it doesn't benevolently yeah. seep back into the ocean for another voyage. Like, it crashes. The ocean rejects this vile ship, this ghostly galley. Galleon. But can we trust it? I can we can we trust the ocean? 
Oh, I don't think we can necessarily trust it because it's so overwhelming force. It means it might crush us. Mm. But uh, there's a sense in which it doesn't have that deeper level of like evil to it, I don't think. It has a sort of... Well, I do want it because she she's making a deal with the devil, kind of. Mm-hmm. And the ocean true. here is doing is the, the work of the devil. So... This is true. It's hard to tell. I, I, if we read more Howard, it'd be interesting to see like how often he makes nature character and how yeah. often he makes forces evil or not evil look at look at the the first girl hard to know the daughter of mal Farrell. when so the tides bore her gently the the the, the niece the niece oh sorry the niece of mal Farrell. the yeah. tides bore her gently across the wet sands and laid her almost at her own door virgin white she was and her arms were folded across her still bosom calm was her face and the gray tides mm. sighed about her slender limbs so not only mm. are the tides bearing her gently and laying her almost at her door and not only are the tides sighing but she is presented as virgin white her arms Mm. folded across her chest face calm so you know there is the the sea is making a judgment here the sea is saying i'm going to treat this person kindly i'm not going to mangle this body you know what i mean so there is Mm -hmm. The way the sea is being personified does have an ethical dimension that isn't pure evil. It's not causing harm for the sake of harm, mm-hmm. but it has a, a judge, you know, a mm-hmm. kind of judgment factor to it. It the sea treats people the way people seem to deserve. Yeah. I wonder she also when she when she starts the curse, she is making a curse to two opposite she's asking God to help and she's also asking the devil to help. I wonder if the sea is both, or if there are two things going on. I mean, it, it, I think, I think, I think exactly. Like, I think the key point here is like the, the extent to which the sea is personified. You know, the fact oh, made like a person to you know be even more literal about it, and I think it does seem to still reflect the same sort of sense of a person who hmm. has preferences and can be inconsistent. Has a very powerful person, like has very great power. The sea, but I, I do agree, it's kind of like it is characterized as being almost human, almost like a character. And it behaves like character. It has contradictions and it has hmm. yeah, preferences. You know, whims, preferences. And it certainly does see that it seems that the, the sea is on the side of Maul, Farrell, and it's not on the side of John Colrec and Lila, as also clear from the story. And that Maul is positioned by the story as being on the borderland between Farringtown and the sea. So there's a sense in which she's sort of like is much more closely linked to the sea than everyone else. That makes sense on the border too. Like she's got her feet in both sides, like you said, and she is mm. praying to both sides too. Falfiend, God. So she's kind of always on the border as a character. And her name is Farrell. We are positioned, I think, to sympathize more yeah. with Maul Farrell than with John Coolrick and Lila. We don't think, oh, how horrible that John Coolrick and Lila, you know, fell foul of this curse. We think, yeah, like we feel sensibly. <laughs> yeah. uh, justice has been done by this curse. Mm. It's a just curse. You know, we speak of just wars, unjust wars. This is a just curse. Mm. And, um, you know, we have to accept that. Mm. Well, I feel satisfied. Cool. <laughs> Any, any last words? Nay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I wanted two things that we said we wanted to watch for again is how does the narrator work in these seafaring tales? Like, what, to what extent are they involved? And do they become characters as far as telling a sea tale? And then the other thing we wanted to look out for, too, was like, what is the sea characterized? And how does that change author to author? I think that'll be fun to see. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, Zach and John. Catch you later, Bob and Zach.